So he's still depressed and he's kind of screwed up about all this, and he spends his first night sleeping on the ground beneath a tree. And all night long, he's getting attacked by rats that are literally trying to eat him alive. Wow, I didn't know this took place in New York City. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about, among many things, dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good evening. Good evening to you, sir. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? I don't know. This was your turn to do the research. Why don't you tell me who we have this week? All right, his name was Alexander Selkirk. Never heard of him. And that's exactly why we're covering him. This shit again? Is this going to be like Swedenborg all over again? All this weird crap? Look, I promise one day I'll cover someone important again. Uh, but this time I just wanted to cover someone cool. I see. Cool, he says. That's pretty rich coming from you. But then again, I know I really set a high bar with the whole Knights of Malta thing. Just trying mm -hmm. to keep keep up, right? Yeah, but, you know, the last guy I covered was literally an alien, and aliens are not cool. How dare you, sir? Aliens could be cool if they wanted to be. I mean, you could just get them a skateboard and a pack of cigarettes, and aliens could become the baddest sons of bitches on the face of the planet. Or above it, for all we know. Wouldn't you like it if they were above it? We all know the aliens aren't in space, Aaron. They're in Washington, D.C. right now, sucking the life out of the American people with their energy rays. I, for one, find that very badass. <laughs> then you are lost. Look, I, I don't want to piss off the aliens today, all right? And I don't want to alienate the alien demographic. I... I don't even know if I can respond to that. They're already alienated. They are literally aliens. They cannot be more alienated. All that aside, I think it's time to get down to the history lab so I can deliver what I discovered about a man who was most definitely not an alien, but kind of was an alien in a manner of speaking. Okay, when are you going to cover someone normal? His uncomfortable expressions at the Golden Globes, a volleyball, and a world of adventure. This week on We Talk About Dead People, we'll hear the story of a man who overcame his mortal status and transcended to godhood. Not by conquest of his enemies or the ravaging of hostile nations, but by contending bravely with the greatest foe man can face, nature. Alexander Selkirk, a man way cooler than Tom Hanks, and unlike Tom Hanks, definitely was not a fucking So, George, tell me, if you had to outline a survival strategy for the upcoming, shall we say, literal biblical apocalypse, what would your strategy be, and what advice would you give to your fellow patriotic Americans? Oh, wow. That's a that's a biggie. Let's see. Um, well, advice number one is obviously don't listen to the man from the government. He does not have your best interests at heart um, Two, uh stock up on 
the things you don't think about stocking up on, like, you know, soap and toothpaste, um, stuff that can be used both by, both by you and also as bartering implements later on. And uh, let's see, um, learn some fucking skills. Like, I realized that I was thinking about the end of the world and I was like, wow, shit, there are a lot of things I'm going to need to know how to do that I don't know how to do. So, like, learn to weld or something like get some marketable skill that doesn't involve imaginary numbers being transferred around, but actually may help you survive the literal biblical apocalypse, which Aaron has so kindly predicted for us. (laughs) And what about you, Aaron? Uh, What are you what are you thinking for your strategy to survive the literal biblical apocalypse? Um, well, me being an absolute fool, uh, I have no good advice, but I'll tell you what I'll be doing. <laughs> hey, uh, does it involve good... hot pockets? <laughs> Only a little bit. It's like part of the plan. I mean, I was just thinking those might be a good thing to barter. I don't think they ever go bad um, yeah, like at that's all. That's true. It's and they true. will, they like cockroaches, they'll definitely survive the nuclear apocalypse. In fact, they might become more nutritious if they're slightly irradiated. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the day if it killed off some stuff. Yep, yep. Uh, no, I guess my serious, my serious advice would be, uh, 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 learn to fix a car and how to screw in a light bulb and how to live with candles. I don't know. Oh, no, actually, my advice would be uh, follow the Lord Jesus so you can go to heaven before it all happens. If you're a predispensational. Is that what they call it? Pre- predispensational? You're the Protestant, not me. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, mostly joking. Um, so, <clears throat> computer, please. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I've got another important piece of advice based on what you were saying about living with candles and fixing stuff. Is uh, See if you can get the Amish to teach you how to do sick handbrake turns on a buggy, because that'll be important for rallying people to your cause is going to is going to be doing sick handbrake turns on a buggy. So get them to teach you while you can still, you know, buy, a, you know, jam and stuff from them in exchange for them teaching you. Uh, yeah, because we got to be ready for those Mad Max Amish, you know, <laughs> cart convoy let me tell you what nobody suspects them but they are gonna be ready when this happens because they already they already live like it's a post-apocalyptic world without electricity so who better to have on your side witness me or witness the bitch (laughs) (laughs) fucking amish i'm so glad amish listened to our podcast i know they don't want people to know it but we're glad to have an amish audience i wish amish people listen to our podcast do you think we can like put some of this on a like an a hand-cranked LP or something and bring it to them? I had someone suggest that I put my favorite episode on vinyl and sell it. (laughs) Wasn't that me? That might have been you. I think it was me. (laughs) I think I was telling somebody else about that. I think it might have been my brother, but I thought that was so funny. All right, anyway, so this is much ado about nothing. Computer, please bring up Alexander Selkirk. All right, I take it all back. I just realized my advice for the uh, literal biblical apocalypse. Uh, do as do as Alexander Selkirk did. <laughs> uh, and we'll get to what that was here in a second. But I think, I think George, you might have a question for me there in the not script. I don't know what you're talking about. I was just going to say, 
I don't have a clue what Alexander Selkirk did, so I can't yet make fun of you for giving bad advice, but we'll get there. In the meantime, however, gotta keep you on the straight and narrow, so let's, uh, let's begin as tradition dictates we do. See, I'm Catholic. Oh, um, look at you. <laughs> and, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about what Alexander Selkirk might have looked like. Well, I'm gonna put you on the spot like you made, you put me on the spot last week, and I'm gonna make you describe him. Uh, there's a picture right there, can you see it? I... Don't know what you're talking about, because there's not a script. Um, but I, um, I, I'm receiving some sort of vision from central central control. Okay, I think I see it. I think I see it. Aliens are real, kids. Okay. So, let's see. Um, when I first saw that, I thought I was looking at some sort of, like, Mongol warrior. Because uh, this is, man, he's, he's got, like, furs. And not, like, not, like nice like designer furs you wear to the opera this man who literally just looks like he's wearing skins he just tore off an animal that tried to eat his leg um and he's got like multiple belts going around all the furs and let me tell you whenever you see someone wearing multiple belts you do not mess with that guy because it's just it's a sure sign that there's some sort of hardcore mofo and they've got you know pistols or whatever they need all those belts for is going to be a thing that's not going to be good for you if you mess with them. So never mess with someone wearing multiple belts. And True. so clothing aside, now we've described that he's got all the furs and the belts. Um, he's got a pretty big beard. In fact, it's kind of hard to tell where the beard ends and the fur begins. <laughs> um, that's really, I think that's sort of up to the, the viewer of this picture's imagination as to where the distinction there is. Cause I can't really draw it. He's either wearing a fur hat or has some sort of atrocious bowl cut it's hard to tell because this appears to be a uh, a statue that's outdoors, and so it has that nice sort of uh, weathering effect, but it does make the details a little bit hard to make out. So uh, for the sake of not picturing him as uh, having a bowl cut, I'm going to say he's wearing a fur hat. Uh, he's got... His face is kind of small in this image. Uh, he's got he's got a face though. Um, it, it has eyes. He's got a really really solid mustache from what I can see. Like you know how sometimes somebody has a beard but the mustache is a little bit. Eh. Well, this dude does not have that issue. Like that is a that is a like that mustache is like the size of a small cat. Um, so bearded man, very impressive mustache, probably a fur hat. A lot of belts. Um, can't really see enough of enough of him to comment on his uh, how muscular he is, but I'm going to say he's probably jacked just based on all the belts and stuff. I think there's a direct <laughs> correlation there. And he's got his he's got his hand raised up. He seems to be sheltering his vision as he he looks out across some sort of. I'm imagining it some sort of wasteland. The wasteland is probably like you know, scattered with uh, the bodies of the animals from whom he took these skins he's now wearing. <laughs> or it might be filled with the enemies that he's going to fight with his belts. Um, and maybe even he, if things get really, really serious, he might actually draw the sword and the gun, which I've now observed he has on the belts. I knew I knew the belts were going to be important later. So yeah, um, oh, I'm just looking off to the right on the image. That is one heck of a forearm. Like this, this guy has an absolutely jacked, forearm like geez i would not go up, up against this guy in the old friday night arm wrestling tournament Jeez, yeah no i mean belts forearms uh fur hat it's it's all here the whole picture's here this is not a dude you want to mess with <laughs> that was the best description i think i've ever heard on this show absolutely just blew through <laughs> Off the cuff, too. Well done, sir. Well, you know, it's it's an impressive image. It's an impressive image. 
I can make it bigger. Look, in the not script, I'll just make it a little bit bigger. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. You can really see the definition on the forearms now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I think we should do this from now on where we go off the cuff. That was hilarious. <sighs> so, yeah, uh, he's, he's, a, he's a tough looking guy is the, is the takeaway here. Tough looking guy who looks like he, uh, he really sort of lives hard out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh I think that's that's a good hint at where we're gonna go with this. But it's gonna begin in a place that you would never expect it to begin. Jersey. Uh, what? New, New Jersey. <laughs> New nothing ever happens in New Jersey. Just ask Neil of the War and Conquest podcast. Anyway, we're gonna kick off our story uh by talking about sixteen seventy six. Sixteen seventy six will commence again. Yes, it did occur. It was a year that occurred a mere century before the greatest nation in all the world would be born. And without the shining light of America to guide the darkened world into a consumerist dystopia where everybody hates themselves, the world was very, very dark indeed. Especially in a place you might have heard of known as Scotland. For you see, Scotland, like Ireland, had this evil little neighbor called England. Oh god, not again. You're gonna get me all worked up if we start talking about England. You better get that highlighter ready so you can interrupt me. Uh, because I, I fully support anything about, about pissing on England at this point. I won't go through all of this, but <clears throat> 1676 was a year that took place after massive upheavals caused by the Protestant Reformation. And reading about the Protestant Reformation alone makes me want to abandon all of it altogether and just go full Catholic, but mm, I still haven't been pushed far enough. Not enough <laughs> examples of people eating each other. <laughs> yeah, because remember, so the, the Protestant Reformation is happening, oh, you know, well over a hundred years before this. But as we've seen with Protestantism, once one person does it, everybody wants to do it. So Henry VIII sort of had his first Reformation, and then there's all these sort of Reformations after that, and you have then Puritans not liking Anglicans, and then you have Presbyterians, and so once you sort of start with one Reformation, as we can see, this is over a hundred years later, and we're still having now, like, inter-Protestant Reformations that are fighting each other. That's right. It's entirely fractal hell. I don't know how else to put it. Um, so, these upheavals did take the form of infighting and civil war, of course, uh, which eventually allowed an English friend of ours named Oliver Cromwell, disgusting, to occupy Scotland with forces led by a commander named George Monk. Not that it matters, because we're going to move right along. This did cause a few things to happen. First of all, the country was incorporated into the Puritan-governed Commonwealth. Uh, Which, that's the, that's the government that the, the one group of Protestants established after they beheaded the king and decided the other Protestants weren't Protestant enough. Exactly. Um, and as you may have guessed from that little description that George gave us right there, this is not so great for them, or for Scotland as a whole, because uh, it's run by the English. <laughs> so Scotland accordingly lost its independent government and legal system and was adopted into the English one. And the articles I was reading were like trying to make this out to be like a positive thing, like, oh, England, like Scotland got to trade with England for the first time, which, you know, if you're a noob, it might sound like a good thing, or if you're a free market absolutist. But if you know anything about the way England does market, you or know if that you, it, you know, like had friends growing up and weren't a complete asshole. True. Uh, <laughs> 
So you know that getting involved with English trade is never good in the long run. Uh, it may have short-term benefits, but it is it is it is really not good for for the uh, future of your society. So this Cromwellian nightmare uh, lasted from about 1651 to 1660, at which point Cromwell was fucking dead, which was good, <laughs> and his regime had collapsed or collapsed. I was gonna make a joke there. Uh, the only well Cromwell is the dead Cromwell. Ha! I don't know. <laughs> so Cromwell's okay. dead and orders restored. The land of Scotland got its king back, King Charles II, and it seemed like things were going to go back to normal. <clears throat> Except not so much. Because there, were, there was uh, a little problem with uh, Presbyterians down in the southwest who, even though the official Church of Scotland had been restored with the regime change, refused to stop meeting in fields and barns to talk about whatever the hell it is Presbyterians talk about. I think it's mostly, like, casseroles and how everyone's going to hell. Yes, uh... Yes, I would say that's about in line. I mean, it's a generalization, but I think there's something there. It's a joke. <laughs> if we can't joke about all this crazy shit, then we'll because never rem get past remember the Protestant the, Reformation. The thing about Presbyterians is that they are Calvinists. Oh my god, how dare you say such a word on this show, you <laughs> Gonna fucker. have to censor that. Oh man. Yeah, I, sh I really should censor that. That would be hilarious. How about I censor Calvinist every time? <laughs> so anyway, all this bullshit with the Presbyterians came to a head after the state attempted to suppress them, um, which culminated with the Battle of Bothwell Bridge, during which 6,000 dissenters went toe-to-toe -to -toe with 5,000 heavily armed government regulars. The dissenters basically ran across a bridge, got killed by the hundreds for an hour, and then ran away and nothing came of it. Um... And that's the uh, Battle of Bothwell Bridge. And after this that's delight... A, that's a little bit less exciting than the uh, the battle we did last week, I've got to say. For sure. It's like the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so after this delightful event, the government basically started hunting down Presbyterians in Scotland and an intense persecution known colloquially, colloquially, that's a hard word, as the killing time had a chance to kick off. And it's pretty nasty stuff. I was I was going to say, I was kind of getting that vibe just out of nowhere, really. I think it was just intuitive. And something about the word time. Yeah, maybe. I think it was the the, like the placement of the article there is ominous. I would have thought it would be the killing word, though, that got me in it. It really didn't. It was the other two. Yeah, yeah. no accounting for it. No, no. But just before the killing time began, a child was born. Was it Jesus? It wasn't Jesus. A oh. little, little, a couple millennia too late, just about. Um, so anyway... It was 1676, and Alexander Selkirk hit the scene. And he was one scrappy lad in his younger days. He was always getting in trouble, and he was, you know, doing the stuff that boys do. Um, he was the son of a cobbler and a tanner, and like I said, he often got in trouble. In fact, there's kind of a life gap here because he was a child that didn't matter uh, in 1676. So we jump up ahead to when he's 13, where he gets in trouble with the Presbyterians for doing something that was, quote, indecent, end quote, while at church. What he actually did uh, that was indecent, we may never actually know. Uh, but one can assume it was like either like twiddling his thumbs or looking like a sinner or something depraved like that. Or maybe, gosh, not believing in the doctrine of total depravity. <laughs> disgusting absolutely disgusting so he was summoned to what was known as the Kirk session 
which is a thing that happens in Presbyterian yeah, churches. Kirk just means church. Right, right, right. I didn't know that, um, but thank you for... <laughs> for um, so the Kirk session is basically uh, the court of Presbyterianism, which, God help me, sounds absolutely horrendous. Um, but uh, Kirk... Uh, not Kirk, Selkirk, my God. Captain never, Kirk. Captain, one of the Kirks, <laughs> I don't even care. He never showed up and instead went out to sea for eight years. He was going to get mean, like a I've, little slap on the I've wrist. I've done some things in my life to like avoid an awkward conversation, like, you know, change the route I walked to class in to avoid seeing somebody, that kind of deal. But I've never gone to sea for eight years to avoid it. Uh, yeah, but have you ever like gotten into buccaneering as a career to avoid an awkward conversation? <laughs> uh, I'm not authorized to answer that question. Uh, yeah, anti-piracy laws and all that. Uh, we're gonna get flagged. Black flagged! <laughs> oh! uh, so yes, Alexander Selkirk at some point, after getting in trouble at church, got onto a boat and became a buccaneer. And here's the part where we talk about what the fuck a buccaneer and buccaneering itself actually is. Uh, and that's just such a good word, I'm going to say it as much as possible. And then it's going to stop sounding like a word, and it's going to be weird. We we all know this pattern. Yeah. You know, the one thing I didn't include is what the word actually means. Do you know the, the, uh, the story? I think... Now this, I have no justification for this without looking it up, but I think it has something to do with the way you cook beef. Yep, that's right. Uh, and I, I don't... <sighs> All right, let's just Google it. Let's take just a second, Buccaneer. Okay, do you want me to do a dance or something? Want to entertain the <laughs> the people who can't see me while it's you a, look was, it up? I was gonna say it's a podcast. I, I love the I love the enthusiasm, but I okay. Um, trust me, it's better if they don't see me dance. <laughs> Originally, the name applied to the landless hunters of wild boar and cattle in the largely uninhabited areas of Tortuga and Hispaniola. The meat they caught was smoked over a slow fire in little huts. The French called it boucané, or something like that, to make viande boucané, jerked meat or jerky. So they're named after beef jerky, which is actually kind of badass. Uh, Perfect. Yes. So, <clears throat> but let's talk about let's talk about buccaneering itself. Let's get off the word and let's get serious, okay? So we've established before, and we've established again, that England has begun at this point in history stretching its noodly alien appendages all over the world to establish trade and eventually turn itself into a horrifying monster. And at this point, however, we're not the, they're not the only ones at this. Um, while the English certainly have got a major hold on trade routes, the Spanish, the French, the Portuguese, and other such kingdoms slash you know, whatever the fuck they eventually became, are all competing with each other to see who can make the most money. Um, at this point, this is, this is, this is literally a trade war. This isn't like, my stocks are going up and down like it's trade. No, it's like a literal war, and it's over trade. And it's obviously um, because what if of I, that. What if I told you that all our wars were over trade? Oh, da how dare you, sir? I thought you were a scholar. All right, you're I, probably right. You're probably right. All right, fuck it. <laughs> no, you're definitely right. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> trade wars, obviously ruthless in more ways than you can stake, uh, shake, steak, shake a stick at. Steak and shake. I'm <laughs> hungry now, damn it. I feel like I just drank 10 coffees. Um, Did you just drink 10 coffees? No, I swear. I don't know. I don't know why I have so much energy. I think I've just been like dying to get this story out or something. So anyway, <clears throat> the shitty part of about all of this with a trade war is that it literally comes down to money, but not quite in the way you might think. 
England was interested in extending its power across the world and funded expeditions, eventual wars, and supply routes. And as England expanded, it required more resources to pay for the expansions. This is how corporations grow. And uh, I'm sure all of you went to business school at some point and you're, you know, cleaning floors at McDonald's now. Um, this is how corporations grow. And obviously the Corporation of England had to compete with the corporations of the Spanish and the French and all the others uh, that had... Um, they had to get basically all of them were trying to gain as much capital as possible and like i said the reason for this wasn't exactly like one thing it wasn't like pure greed at least not for everyone um greed was definitely part of it but it wasn't the whole picture and this is not me defending it by the way this is me giving you even more reasons to hate it okay so uh, you see there were these um th these uh french and spanish and english countries you might say um, they were all fighting with each other so fucking often uh, that they had to do everything they could to keep their war chests filled with more capital so they could keep fighting each other and keep expanding. And in this insane race to outdo each other, these national corporations had to grow uh, constantly larger and larger and larger. And with the threat of war always looming, elitist paranoia, and that's the nobility, I'm not just using that as a buzzword, the paranoia about defeat or collapse... Uh, of the existing power structure was what ended up driving this absolutely mad rush for global colonization between these major powers. It's a trade war, and it's absolutely fucking brutal. I'm not even gonna give a trigger warning because if you've gotten this far, you should understand how bad this can get. <clears throat> Did you want yes. to say something? No. <laughs> <laughs> I just got a text from a fan. He said, you're right, the Lavalette episode gets fucking crazy in the second half. So, good I on mean, you, he, sir. He's right. Yeah, it does. It does. Listen, stick with it, everybody. So anyway, trade war. Brutal. At first, it's open season. There's a ton of land to explore to find more resources. Uh, and there's plenty of indigenous peoples to first trade with, then exploit and eventually enslave to be used as free labor in an ever-expanding empire. And this crime, of course, was being justified with, The other guys are doing it, and if we don't, we won't have the same edge, and they'll win, and your morals are getting in the way of the defense of your country. So, all that shit. I feel like I've heard that somewhere. I think that one seems familiar, but I can't say for sure. Um, so... We've got well, the uh, the <laughs> the one person over the age of fifty who listens to our podcast is probably just logged off because he's offended by our lack of patriotism. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, for for those of you uh, who have been with the show, most of y'all are like between twenty and thirty. <laughs> so, uh, and we have like one or two people over forty, and they are welcome every time. Uh, but it's just interesting to see what our uh, what our demographics look like. Um. All right, so, yes, so because it's a trade war and because it's open season, we've got corruption, bribery, sabotage, and more going on in the ridiculous game of imperialist capitalism. And at a certain point, like these things do, it all comes to a head. Eventually, England's corporation got so large that the threat of any capital going to any other country became a much bigger deal. Resources, believe it or not, are actually limited— uh, even self-renewing things like cash crops are not sustainable in this kind of system because the annual production still has a limited output that has to be divided up between the uh, powers. So even if you have like, oh, here's a year's worth of corn, well, you know, that's got to be divided between the Spanish, the French, and the English, and then it's gone for that year, and then you have to wait. And even though it's self-renewing, 
Does this make sense? Am I explaining this well? Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. Um, so yes, uh, so these conquerors who are constantly expanding their empires and constantly going to war and thus requiring more and more resources know that this means that no matter the production output, it will literally never be enough. Uh, there's no way to produce enough to satisfy the simple demand for more. Because there's, there's no end to more. It's just more, more. We're getting bigger. Get more. And of um, course, as you get bigger, the administration gets bigger, which mm -hmm. tends to have certain diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. Like at a certain point, the administration is increasing in the cost it takes to run faster than the expansion is bringing in capital. Right. So you can't you can't even expand fast enough in the end uh, to do anything about this, you know, eventual demise of this insane engine you're trying to run. So when the conquest or the quest to satisfy the unending demand for more, this means that the only way to establish any kind of control over the market is to attack competing companies or corporations in meaningful ways. This is why, uh, and we covered this a long time ago with our Ray Kroc McDonald's episode. It's why McDonald's bought a ton of land when it was becoming a corporate empire. Ray Kroc may have been a bastard, but he was a low-key stable genius in this regard. Um, he when did you when did you cover that? Way way back. I was like three. <laughs> I was gonna say this must have been back when I still had friends before I was into podcasting. I know. It just just sucks your life away like an alien. Um, so yeah, Ray Kroc, uh, I'll just, I'll just recap for the, for the benefit of the, uh, of the audience and for you, George. Um, Ray Kroc was like, one of the things that he said in the, uh, or one of the things that was said in the movie, uh, the founder was that you're not in the burger business, you're in the, uh, real estate business. Because in order to squeeze out any competition in the future, uh, Ray Kroc bought up all the land that was going to be potentially developed for like fast food restaurants and that sort of thing. And then that made it so that if anybody wanted to compete in decent areas, like right off of freeways or whatever, he would, they would have to go through him and he would charge them like an exorbitant price or just not sell at all. If he felt like they were getting too strong, it's how he established perfect dominance. Uh, because he couldn't physically build enough golden arches to take over America fast enough. Um, so he developed a secondary preemptive strategy to guarantee his stranglehold on the burger market. Um, and that's the situation we're in here with the uh, trade war going on between France, Spain, and England, and Portugal's in there somewhere. Um, ruthless, it's ruthless, it's do or die, no trick is too cheap, it's psychopathic empire building masquerading as national interest, which is just fascinating to me, but hey, money, money does things, apparently. I, I've heard that people with money can, can do things, but I wouldn't know, because I don't have any money. I was gonna <laughs> say, I've heard that people do have money. Yeah. I've heard a rumor. I've never met anyone with money, though. It's kind of weird. <laughs> I have. I'd stay away from them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it turns out that going to uh, war over resources uh, costs those exact resources you're trying to pile up. And in this never-ending paranoia field capital machine, one of the biggest gear grinders in the whole psychotic operation is piracy. You've got a whole operation of pirate kings acting outside the system to capture all the gold and booty and tobacco that they can stash. And they don't play favorites. These are sailors who have just decided to fuck with the system for personal gain, and they really don't care if your spice vessel is flying a Spanish or a British flag. This is the anarcho-capitalist gang. 
Um, they're, they don't care about your country. They just want their money, basically. Very spicy. Mm-hmm, very, very spicy. So the English and all the other corporations, but mostly the English, all have these piracy problems, and they start to come up with a plan. They think to themselves, hey, these plunderers are pretty good at capturing vessels. They stole one of mine, but they also stole one of the Spaniards. Perhaps I can pay this pirate to only steal from the Spaniards. Thus, buccaneering was born. Pirates would sign up to receive what were called letters of mark, um, which officially made them free agents acting on behalf of the interests of their respective empires. Uh, yes, that, that was it. Did you want to say something? Yes, because this is also called privateering, if yes. you've heard that term. Yes, but buccaneering has that buck in it, you know? Buck. It's not private. I, private. I, I, I'm not sure how that's an argument, but okay. It's it's not an argument. It's it's uh it's mere it's persuasion. <laughs> it's a fact. <laughs> buccaneer is a better word than privateer. A buccaneer sounds like a guy with a cutlass. A privateer sounds like a guy in the locker room is being weird. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He might also have a cutlass. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Moving <laughs> on. Yep, moving on. Uh, so buccaneers are cheaper than the Navy, and they don't even get paid unless they actually take ships. And you don't care if they die. And you don't care if you die. Um, like, a, you, uh, this next sentence is so funny, I'm going to just say it, even though we just basically said the same thing. So if your buccaneer that you hired takes both the cannonball to the face and subsequently takes no loot, you lose nothing as Did the corporation. Did you say subsequently? Did I say subsequently? You did. Oh, and subsequently, no loot to the face. <laughs> no, no, it's subsequently. Subsequently? Yeah. Subsequently. Why stress is subsequently? Have I been saying it both ways my whole life? <laughs> I've literally never heard anyone say subsequently until this very moment. It's because I manage sequences in Adobe Premiere. You don't say sequences. <laughs> what am I, a British? <laughs> All right. Subsequently. These are the big questions. See, Some, we, we tackle the real issues on this podcast. Say, this, is, uh, this is my curse for bringing a linguist on. <laughs> so, as you might imagine, these buccaneering vessels had frequent staff turnover due to hazardous working conditions. Turns out, living in a floating, rotting, stinking tub and taking said tub to engage in violent ship-to-ship -ship combat was high-risk work. Uh, but in addition to the losses taken in combat or by sickness or sailing accidents, uh, we had another element at play. Is it These, aliens? It was, might have been aliens. I'm not, I can't say for sure, never can say for sure, but might have been aliens. But you see, not only was your average buccaneering boat uh, a hazardous work environment, environment, it was also what we might call in our um, gilded modern era a toxic work environment. Mm, uh, and let me I just see. explain to you, I mean... The, the Buccaneers have nothing on, on the toxic workplaces of today, but I need to go through it, and it's just, you'll see. You'll see that how, why working in a, in a job in modern-day America is way worse than this was back then. So, politics varied between crews, uh, politics varied between different people, personalities were all over the place, um, and people were from all kinds of different backgrounds all over the British Isles, um, how dare I, uh, just, like, people who had no education, people who had no life, who had no money, these are the people who were like, sure, I'll sign up, I don't care if I die, I might get a little bit of plunder and live the good life. 
And to cope with all this difficult shit uh, that these dudes were putting up with, these men were frequently drinking. And as a result of all these challenges, many buccaneer captains could be very ruthless, and many of them had to be. If their men lost morale or were always fighting with each other, nobody would get paid when they go home. And, you know, at, at worst, like, people start, like, killing each other, committing suicide or mutinying and uh, mutineering, whatever the fuck. Uh, you know, you, you gotta be kind of harsh to keep these guys in line, because they're half drunk half the time. And this is why corporal punishment of varying degrees of barbarism were put into place. Uh, if you pissed off the first mate, you got some lashes. If you pissed off the captain, you might lose a nose or an ear. Uh, if you pissed off everyone, you might get thrown overboard or have your throat cut in your sleep. And if so the captain... Basic, basically like an academic department. That's quite literally... <laughs> I was hoping you would say that. Um, and if the captain, of course, pissed off his crew too much, he too would lose his entire ship and probably die in a horrible way. Anyway... So this is where we find Alexander Selkirk, right? He's fleeing his hometown to avoid punishment for doing something naughty in the church. And the people who take him in are this band, these bands of misfits on these, you know, adventure tubs. Uh, and he finds himself roped into the buccaneer life at 13 years of age. Oh, wow. And, he's, he's pretty young. Yeah, he's pretty also, young. Also, can we, can we just add that this, add this to the list of history's greatest unanswered questions. What did Alexander Selkirk do in church? Um, we have to add that to who did Lava, who did Lava let get in a fist fight with? Mm-hmm. These are the unanswered questions. Um, by the way, I would like to allow the listeners in on a, a little piece of personal information here. I have a very old dog, and he's walking around. And he can't see anything. He doesn't even know the lights are off right now. And he's only got the one ear, and the one other one doesn't barely work for shit. Uh, so he likes to stomp around and try to find his bed. So if you hear him, there, listen. I don't hear anything. You just talked right over it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you hear the old claws a clacking, that's him. So that sounds like something someone who has prisoners chained up in their basement would say. <laughs> that's fucked up. I don't like that. Um, so yeah, he's a buccaneer at 13, and he does it for about eight years before returning to Scotland, but only briefly. In Scotland, he got into trouble with the church again for attacking his brothers over what? We don't know. Another mystery of history. <laughs> um, probably punched him for making fun of his buccaneer. Wait, so like, so like his actual brothers, not like his brothers in Christ? No, no, his actual brothers. Uh, okay. Um, oh my god, he's so old. Um... He's at the age where you pet He's him. only like 13. Not not this guy. The dog, no, damn it. No, no. He's, he's at the age where you lean down to scratch him, and then he leans into you because he doesn't like supporting his own weight anymore. Oh, he's going to be fine. All right, so whatever it was that he got in trouble for, it seems that things were bad enough to send him rage-quitting back to the sea. Here he joined an English privateer buccaneer, an explorer named William Drampier. <laughs> Uh, on a voyage to the South Pacific. And this was a big break, because William Drampier, or Drampier, I really don't know, and I also don't care, uh, William Drampier was the first man to explore Australia, and would also become known as potentially the most important explorer of the era after only James Cook. Um, he was also famous for having circumnavigated the globe three times. Flat Earthers back the fuck off. This expedition that Selkirk had joined uh, would set out from Ireland on the 11th of September, 1703. Interesting. I know, it's just starting to get weird. Swedenborg, get in here! 
So the uh, the two ship voyage was your typical, you know, buccaneering privateering stuff. The ships were to make their way uh, way down to uh, the South Pacific and attack any Spanish or French vessels that they saw along the way. So they go. They're on their way down to the South Pacific, and they saw no targets until the following February in 1704. So that's like six months. That's like half a year. Yeah, that's six months. Uh, Jeez. And they had to get all the way to Cape Horn before they saw anything. Uh, And this was around the time Selkirk was uh, nearing 30 years old. Uh, And so after weathering a storm near Cape Horn, the two ships spotted a prize. The French vessel called the San Joseph. I don't know how the French would pronounce it, so I pronounce it like a Spaniard. So, the ship was well-armed, and the crew no, was... No, because it, if it was like a Spaniard, it'd be San Jose. You're right. I'm a dumbass. <laughs> I've met one Spaniard in my life. He was one of the coolest people I've ever known, but, you know. Shout out to you, dude. I won't say your name, because I want to protect your identity. This is the part where you accuse me of having never met a Spaniard. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, no, that, that makes sense. you got to protect his, like, social standing, because people knew that, you know, he knew you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Any chance he had had been respected out Back the window. to Spain. So this, uh, this ship, the St. Joseph, as I would say, has a good English boy. The ship was well-armed, and the crew was able to fight off its attackers, the uh, privateer buccaneers that were following. Uh, and then they fled to warn all the Spanish allies in, their, in the area that uh, there were predatory ships nearby, just kind of hanging around. Um, and if you know anything about predatory ships, they are to be avoided. So uh, the Buccaneers went on to attempt to raid a gold mine in its neighboring town uh, in uh, Mexico, I believe, but they were fought off there as well. And after this, the two privateer ships did manage to finally score one for the Republic, and they captured the Ascension, a merchant ship packed with precious resources. And Selkirk was put in charge of this ship until Dumpier had offloaded all the provisions that he could store, taking all the wine, brandy, sugar, and flour, before deciding to let the ship and its crew sail on. Which is to say he just took all the plunder and then let everybody go. Which you'd be like, well, why did he do that? Like, that's a ship that you can ransom back to, you know, whatever government it came from. Presumably the French government. Uh, well, he thought that sailing the thing to a friendly port would be a waste of time and energy. And he wanted a bigger payout, and he wasn't ready to go home. You know, we've had a string of failures, a long journey. They get a little merchant ship, and they're like, eh, let's cash in. He's like, no, we go for bigger prizes than that. Um... And so this is kind of the last straw for the captain of his sister ship, who abandoned Dumpier's mission and struck out on his own. And Selkirk went with this guy, not Dumpier. Oh, I'm sorry. I got that backwards. No, no. Yes, this is correct. Sorry, he did He did not go with Dampier. He went with this guy who was called uh, Captain Stradling. Um, so in September 1704, this new captain, Stradling, took his ship to the island of Masa Tierra, 420 miles off the coast of Chile, to restock water and food supplies like that's, you. Uh, that's kind of out there. There's not a lot yeah. 420 miles off the coast of Chile. Yeah, so... Like, uh, there's <laughs> Antarctica down there, but not a whole lot else. Mm-hmm. So he's going there to restock the water, get some food, and at this point, the boat has been at sea for about a year. And after all that had happened, it was in desperate need of even the most basic repairs. 
And Selkirk was one of the more experienced sailors on the crew, and he told Captain Stradling that in his opinion, the whole operation needed to be halted until the ship could be put back in order. And Captain Stradling wasn't happy about this. Remember, they, he, never, they never are. People mm, never like those hard truths. Yep, they never do. The ship's falling apart. I don't care. Um, so Captain Stradling was not ready to accept this. He had left the Dempier Alliance out of what was essentially frustration at the expedition's lack of success. And the idea of slowing down at this point felt like a sunk cost. Problem was, and let me just double check that Audacity's still going here. It is. The problem was... Uh, Selkirk was insistent. He either joked, or, and at, yeah, at a certain point he was like, look, we're not going to go out there. And he either joked or boldly declared that he'd rather stay on this shitty little island before jumping back into the dangerously leaky ship and waiting to sink. And Stradling turns to Selkirk and he says, Bet. So he called his bluff. He's like, you want to stay on this island? You can stay on the island. We're taking this tub and we're getting out of here. So Stradling sent Selkirk to shore with a musket, a hatchet, a knife, a pot, some bedding, some clothing, and a sea chest containing a few pounds of tobacco, gunpowder, bullets, some sea charts, and a Bible. I mean, that's that's better than you usually, I feel like, have when you're stranded on some deserted island. Like, he's at least got some stuff that's, uh, you know, intended to help him survive. Yeah, I mean, I think the expectation was that he would be picked up. Um, ah, uh, yes. It's like when you uh, you have a fight with someone who's giving you a ride and they make you get out of their car. Yeah. You know, he'll, fi- he'll find his own way. Yeah, he'll find his own way. <laughs> Except they're on an island in a place where there literally is nothing else. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the hope is that partially that, uh, you know, another friendly ship will stop by because it's a frequent stop for, for a lot of... Uh, a lot of ships. And Selkirk tried to apologize, but unfortunately, Stradling was on his honor about this. He couldn't have a crewman questioning him so much in front of the men, let alone making jokes about it. And remember, this is about morale. And if a guy like Selkirk, who's an experienced sailor, is repeatedly disagreeing with you, um, it's basically your job as a captain to make an example out of him. So I don't really blame Stradling necessarily. It's harsh, but, you know... I don't know. There was I mean, pro- you know, we don't we don't really know exactly how it went down. Like he could have been a real dick about it. He really could have. And like, if, yeah, Selkirk may have been insufferable. <laughs> yeah, and even back then, like, even just saying, "I'd rather stay on this shitty island than get on your boat," it's like, my my good sir, how dare you impugn my honor? Like, it was a different culture. Um, even though they were buccaneers, there was still like, uh, I mean, there was the pirates' code, right? And so Stradling sailed away as Selkirk watched him from the shore, probably kicking himself harder than he'd ever kicked himself in his life. Because he was probably going to die here, and there was nothing he could do about it. His future was unsure, now marooned on an island, alone castaway from a system that had been the source of his livelihood since he was a teenager. He was a mere sailor, a buccaneer for the crown, a speck within the whole operation, and yet secure within the whole operation. And now... He became a Twitch streamer. He did. That's exactly what he did. No, he, he didn't do that. There were, the, I don't know if you knew this, but there weren't computers back then. What? Oh my god. <laughs> what, what is that? How do you turn it on? Those boomer comics? Or oh, like, yeah. Oh, they got a book. <laughs> Father, I can't turn on the book. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. And then, the, and then the, the old man in the comic is always like, I hate my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, 
Selkirk at this point is like in a situation where he's basically staring through the window of a Chuck E. Cheese when he's five. You ever have that? Where you're watching all those kids play in the jungle gym, but for you, the door to the land of the Chuck has been permanently locked. You have been left out. You are not even allowed to play in the game anymore. Ah, uh, yes, the old mechanical rat child casino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you ever looked at uh, original costumes from Chuck E. Cheese? I can't say that I have. I want you to Google it right now. Okay, what, what should I type in? Old Chuck E. Cheese costume. Okay. There's a I was always more of a... What's it? There's another chain that's kind of kind of similar that I used to be the one I went to when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, Peter Piper Pizza. That's oh. like a... What is this? What? Nothing. Nothing. I've only been to one. Okay. Charles Cheese. Let's see. <laughs> okay, I mean, I'm, I'm the first to admit that that is a rather unsettling image I've been confronted <laughs> with. Like, I'm... Yeah, I'm, I'll keep it real with you. Like, that's, uh... That's pretty disturbing. <laughs> I should just make that the cover art for this week's episode. <laughs> I question that rat's intentions. Yeah. They, they, the thing about it, though, is that they, they didn't get better for a really long time. They, like, kept making improvements, and it just kept getting not any better. Um, so anyway, in the case of Alexander Selkirk, there is no creepy Chuck E. Cheese in the building that would discourage him, unless you count the uh, British elite. Um, but he's been locked out of a circus, and out of the entire machine of, of uh, colonial trade. And it turns out, it was the best thing that ever happened to him. So here's where I'd say let's do an honorable mention, but unfortunately, <laughs> I can I can explain. Basically, <laughs> I'm a dumbass, and I wrote an honorable mention about someone that uh, Aaron and James did a long, long time ago, back before I was born on the show. And uh, yeah, so uh, no honorable mention because we're not going to have an honorable mention about something that's already had a whole episode about it. So that one's on me. Direct the hate mail at Aaron, though, because, you know, he may care. Uh, <laughs> you should at least tell everyone who it was so they can go back and listen. It was uh, William Walker, who was a crazy guy who tried to go found his own little like mini America in Central America. And it didn't work that well. And he got killed. Um. Yeah, we did a whole episode on it, but that's a very good Cliff's Notes version. It's pretty crazy, though. Um, any, like, stingers you can give us about it to make people go back and listen? Um, he was incredibly smart. He graduated college at the age of 14 and then went to law school and then got engaged. And then his fiance died of sickness. And that's when he just kind of went crazy. Yep, I remember that part. I don't remember who we paired him with, but uh, he inspired the... Uh, a, a, uh, uh, a fan of the show, a Nicaraguan friend of mine, who uh, said that he's not even the craziest thing that's happened in Nicaragua. Um, and so I ended up doing the Augusto Sandino episode, which was one of my favorites. Uh, highly recommended. It's a crazy story. So anyway, no honorable mention this week. I'm sorry. I know George isn't, though, so uh, I'll apologize on his behalf. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Alexander Selkirk has officially been locked out of Chuck E. Cheese. And on his arrival to his new island home, Alexander Selkirk knew he was about to undergo a huge challenge. Aside from the mere physical survival aspect of his new condition, there were mental and even spiritual mountains to climb. I mean, we're talking the very deepest part of his being. 
And it's like, no wonder why, because when your life changes that much that fast because of a joke and you were a little bit of a dick, uh, it's bound to make you question every single thing about yourself. And remember, he does have a gun. There's an easy way out. And when you've lost your job, your home, your friends, all connections with the outside world, and they've been replaced with a hot, buggy, shitty little island, the easy way out isn't so far from being a rational choice. Um, and it was in the first few days, actually I, w I should say the first few weeks to months of his isolation, that Selkirk was grappling with the decision of whether or not he wanted to survive this. But for a while, all he did was sit on the beach and wait for rescue. He even had the tools necessary to start a fire, and he was even able to catch some lobsters and even some turtles to cook, which he reported the turtles were fucking delicious, so... Uh, I know they're adorable, but this is a- this is a dying man. He was only supplied, of course, with, uh, two meals worth of food when he got off, uh, when he was marooned. Um, so this is- this is good for him. He's somehow as- as, uh, well, he's being provided for by nature in some way. So, he even found a water source nearby, and so he was sustained, and he was still waiting for rescue, watching the sea, looking for sails that would save him from this misery. And with each passing hour, his loneliness began to increase. We all have been there. We have been there. In fact, I would say this is relatable to, uh, quite a few people out there, I'm sure. Um... He's just all alone, sitting on a beach. He feels like he's lost everything. Definitely has, by most counts, lost everything. And he questions about, like, he has questions about his entire life just springing up before him. Because it had all come to this, uh, to die uselessly on a beach eating lobsters, probably of some kind of painful disease or in the jaws of some wild animal. Um, and this last one became rather pertinent in the early days, and we'll get to that in just a sec. But anyway, here's, uh... Here's a quote from a journal from around the time called The Englishman, which was actually a newspaper. Uh, it, was an, it was an interview uh, with uh, Selkirk, so obviously he survived, but an interview with him nonetheless by, I believe, a guy named Robert Steele. Uh, I put his name in later, so we'll correct that if we get to it. So here's, uh, here's from one of the little interviews, and it's got the weird S's that look like F's. It's that old, so uh, it looks like instead of, I forgot to observe, it's... It looks like I forgot to observe. <laughs> Wait, what? What am I missing here? No, it's just that. Sorry, I re Why is it like that? Because that's how S's used to be written. That's it. Basically, um, you know, uh, you've seen German. You know the thing that looks kind of like a really big B, but is uh, actually a long S sound. Yes. Yeah, that's because that is what's called a ligature, which is when two letters get connected together and sort of written as one graph of two of those long S's. And so they, they do the one, and then you kind of go down and do it a second time, and together it ends up looking like a big B. That's that's where that comes from. That's literally just two of those long S's. But no, this was, the long S was normal um, everywhere, not only in English, but... Pretty much everywhere that used their Latin alphabet, the long S was pretty normal for a very, very long time. Interesting. I always wondered about that. Um, so when you read all these piracy kind of documents, it's all written like this and it's hard to read, but you can get it uh, if you read everything in a pirate voice. Which I will not do with this one because it's written by the illustrious scholar uh, Robert Steele, who I've probably misnamed at this point. So anyway, <laughs> uh, illustrious scholar voice time. You're never going to get tired of this one. 
I forgot to observe that during the time of his dissatisfaction, monsters of the deep, which frequently lay on the shore, added to the terrors of his solitude. The dreadful howlings and voices seemed too terrible to be made for human ears. But upon the recovery of his temper, he could with pleasure not only hear their vo- Oh, uh, sorry, sorry. He could with pleasure not only hear their voices, but approach the monsters themselves with great intrepidity. intrepidity. Um, he speaks of sea lions, whole jaws and tails were capable. Whose of... jaws and tails? That's a that's an S. Oh uh, damn it! Whole jaws and tails. <laughs> Do I have to read it like a like a redneck from here on out? Oh god! Damn. Uh, whole jaws and tails are capable of seizing or breaking the limbs of a man. <sighs> approach them. Sorry. I'm, that's okay. When when I saw this. Uh, this image copied in, I was really afraid you were just going to start reading and pronouncing all of them as Fs, and I was going to <laughs> silently kill myself over here. Time of I forgot to observe the time of diff-fatisfaction. <laughs> Monsters of the deep. <laughs> so, anyway, that's right. The beach is starting to get infested with sea lions. <laughs> he could with pleffer. <laughs> Still on that, are we? So, yeah. He speaks. <laughs> Feezing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like I was trying to say, the beach is starting to get filled with sea lions, so his time of, like, mooning over whether or not he's going to kill himself or not is running out. The sea lions will do it for him. And to make matters worse, uh, it's hilariously enough mating season in the sea lion kingdom, so that means the males are acting super aggressive and showing off how tough they are. And Alexander Selkirk eventually realizes that he's in danger on this beach and he needs to take his, his deep thinking elsewhere. So fleeing with all that he could carry, he ventured into the dark interior of the island that he'd been avoiding for so long. Um, and like I said, he had been actively avoiding going inland at this point, mainly because he wanted to see a rescue boat if one was coming. You know, it's that whole castaway thing where he builds fire and he never leaves the beach because he's afraid. But he also was afraid of the jungle. But with aggressive Chad sea lions potentially killing your, you know, ass, <laughs> killing you... To show off to the Stacy Sea Lions, uh, thoughts of rescue go out the window, and the jungle just seems a little more inviting. Because uh, sea lions are not to be fucked with when they're trying to fuck. So he's still depressed, and he's kind of screwed up about all this, and he spends his first night sleeping on the ground beneath a tree. And all night long, he's getting attacked by rats that are literally trying to eat him alive. Wow, I didn't know this took place in New York City. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Look, no, it says it in the next thing in the script. He's maybe in the worst state he's ever been in. It's obviously in New York. <laughs> Good one. Well played, sir. So, this is, <laughs> yeah, so by the time the day has come, he's in maybe the worst state he's been in so far. Um, so the bullet begins to call him again, or as the Englishman says, the Robert Steele essay said, he thought to do violence to himself. Um... He thought about going back to the beach, and he was like, but the sea lions are there, and here are the rats, and everything's screwed up, and I'm gonna, I just should just shoot myself right now. And that's when he hears a strange and yet miraculous sound. Can you guess what he heard, George? 
He heard that Geico could save him 15% or more on car insurance. Yes, and he also heard a goat bleating in the distance. Uh, and he's like, goats aren't typically jungle creatures, are they? Well, it turns out that a whole bunch of goats have been left behind by somebody who had been to that island. And there weren't really many of them, but there were a good number, enough for one guy at least. And they were all feral as hell, uh, but Selkirk was able to use them for both meat, and even better, uh, he was able to use them for that renewable, renewable resource that is milk. They just require leaves, and then you can have milk, and that's good. That's nourishment or whatever. Um, and so he immediately just you know, gets his gun, he's like, I, I gotta have a goat burger right now. And then he cooks his goat burger, and he's like, man, it would be really great if I could have, like, some wild turnips or some kind of cabbage. Uh, and he found both. And as well as some kind of edible and spicy fruit that I didn't look into because it's made up and only exists at Whole Foods. Um, so the discovery of all this variety was an absolute boon for morale, as you might know from, you know, your studies of war. Diet changes are very good for troops' morale. Um, I mean, I remember that from Mountain Blade. I remember that from Mountain Blade, too. I was trying to pretend like I was legitimate, though. I just, I just, yeah. You gotta change up their food in the game or they get mad at you. So anyway, we shall again refer to our article in The Englishman. Uh, and I'll use my, uh, do I, maybe, nah, I'll do it. All right. <clears throat> When those appetites were satisfied, the desire of society was as strong a call upon him, and he appeared to himself least nece necessitous. Uh, when, is that right? Yes, necessitous. <laughs> when he wanted everything, for the supports of his body were easily attained, but the eager longings for feet, feeing, seeing again the face <laughs> of man, during the interval of craving bodily appetites, were hardly supportable. He grew dejected, languid, and melancholy, scarce able to refrain from doing himself violence. Till by degrees, by force of reason, by the force of reason, and frequent reading of the scriptures, and turning his thoughts upon the study of navigation, after the space of eighteen months, he grew thoroughly reconciled to his condition. And when he had made this conquest, the vigor of his health, disengagement from the world, a constant, cheerful, serene sky and temperate air, made his life one continual feast, and his being much more joyful than it had been irksome. He now, taking delight in everything, made the hut in which he lay by ornaments which he cut down from a spacious wood uh, on the side of which it was situated. Okay, so basically... <laughs> Good job, I was really waiting for you to for you to break down on one of the long S's. <laughs> Facious wood, situated. Conqueft. Urkfum. <laughs> you also notice all the nouns are capitalized. Yeah, did you notice that? I did notice and that's, that. And that's, that's another archaic thing that fell out of English, but if you if anyone knows German, in German all nouns are still capitalized. Fascinating. Insert Reddit meme. English is a made-up language. Well, is it, Mr. Linguist? I mean, aren't all languages made up in a sense? Thank with the you! <laughs> with the exception of languages that are patently made up, like Esperanto, and that somebody literally sat down and was like, I'm gonna make a language. I mean, all languages are in a constant state of change and development. Um, 
I don't, I don't know where I'm going with this. Anyway, yeah, just screw Reddit, whatever. All right. <clears throat> so as as it mentioned in there, he did have huts. Uh, he actually built two huts out of... Oh, yeah, the, he's got the duplex. Mm-hmm. He built them out of peppercorn trees. Um, and one was for sleeping and the other was for cooking. Which is- I will point out that I live in a studio apartment, so he currently has better living arrangements than I do because I have to sleep and cook in the same room. Quite literally. Um, so he's he built himself a couple huts, um, and there's some there's some cool woodcut uh, uh, pictures of his huts, like their representation, and they look pretty badass, I will say. Um, and once he had his huts put up, he hunted wild goats and other prey with his gun until almost all of his powder was gone. Uh, at which point he scavenged and discovered two barrel hoops, um, which are just the metal rings that go around barrels, which he used to forge himself a knife. And remember, he did also have another knife and a hatchet, but presumably his knife was used up, but his hatchet wasn't. So he returns to the beach, and he faces down the sea lions he'd been so afraid of, hunting them with his hatchet, and using the meat not only to feed himself, but to domesticate a bunch of feral cats to protect him from the rats that bothered him at night. I, you know, there are no words. Um, but how did he use up his knife? I have no idea. Maybe he lost it. I don't know. Maybe he was he was too cool to use a real knife. He had to forge one from barrel hoops. It's so funny in the interview with uh, Robert Steele, and it's going to be so funny when we get to the end. That's not his name. Um, in the interview with that guy, he was he basically reported that he figured out that the sea lions weren't so scary because you could basically approach them as long as it wasn't mating season, and they would just lie there, and you would just have to stand between their tail and their head and they wouldn't be able to reach back around and get you if you struck fast enough and i thought that was kind of kind of interesting he developed a strategy for hunting sea lions with a hatchet so (laughs) an important life skill yeah it is an important life skill everyone listen to george learn how to kill sea lions with a hatchet it might save your life (laughs) so the longer uh that selkirk was here on this island the more he had to learn uh, and the more he had to draw on his experience growing up uh, and, and uh, working as a buccaneer. Um, and one of the things that happened was his clothes wore out eventually. Uh, but he remembered what he learned about tanning from his father in boyhood. And he used uh, goat skins to, to uh, sew new clothes, which he sewed with a nail. And I thought that was, uh, that's pretty, uh, what's the word? I don't know what the word is. It's not is. Exp- It's not. What's? It's like when you throw something together. It's like a. It's like a. Improvisation. Yeah, improvisation. But that's not. Uh, that that's not the one I was thinking. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. So he he sewed his clothes with a nail. So that makes the the skins that he was wearing on the statue even more badass somehow. And when his shoes finally bit the dust, he just stopped wearing shoes, uh, because his feet had become toughened and calloused. And eventually he did completely run out of gunpowder and bullets, so his musket was useless. And at this point, he built a bow and arrow and started hunting goats like uh, his forefathers did. Actually, no, he didn't build a bow. He chased goats on foot through the forest with his barrel knife. This was his selected method of hunting. I feel like there could have been traps or something he could have made. (laughs) No, barrel knife goat chase in the forest. 
Uh, one time he managed to kill a goat with his barrel knife and fly off a cliff at the same time, but the goat cushioned his fall. And he was out cold for three days, uh, but that goat saved him from a broken back. So he landed on the goat after killing it and falling off a cliff with it. Yeah, that's kind of it's kind of bad when you go unconscious when you're literally the only human being on the island. Yeah, for three days. Um, yeah. Um, it, it might not be that he was unconscious for three days. I think he was unconscious for a little while, but he couldn't move for three days. So, because I think the rats would have eaten him by then. Honestly. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. Um, there were different reports. Some say it was one day. So I just, I, you know, as you do, you just combine historical accounts because they're all trustworthy. Okay. So after that, he, uh, he was like, fuck it. I'm not going to chase these guys through the woods. Um, so he started domesticating the goats. Uh, and he had a whole bunch of them living in a, in a, near his hut in a pen that he built. And meanwhile, he started memorizing psalms and reciting them all day long while he was working so that he could keep his English in good working order. Um, and I don't, I, maybe I should ask you about that. What is that, like, do you actually forget to talk if you're, like, away from things for a long time? I'm not that lonely, Aaron. <laughs> Yeah, the full disclosure, we have to get on here a half hour before we start recording because he has to remember how to speak English. <laughs> yeah, Aaron has to walk me through some speaking exercises and, you know, yep. it's it's it, it's really an act of love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so he was, Stelkirk was so busy doing all these things, you know, maintaining his hut, chasing goats through the forest, um, you know, screaming Odin all at once. Um, there was never a dull moment. Uh, he grew strong in the face of this adversity and even thrived. And he would later report that it was here that he experienced the happiest days of his life. And for I mean, he does have a trained cat army, so I can see why. Exactly. Like, this is... This is... This is pretty awesome. Um, and I just, I just kind of want to, like, maybe focus in a little bit on this. Like, his situation here is he lost everything that he had. His job, his friends, his boat, you know, his home, and his connection with the outside world. And somehow he still made it tolerable. Um, and so for 18 months, he survived this way. Uh, just raising his goats and, you know, raising them so that they were slow, so he didn't have to chase them that far. Um, that's actually not made up. He would uh, basically breed the ones that couldn't run very fast so he would have slower goats to chase um but 18 months go by and one day suddenly white sails appear on the horizon and it seemed that rescue from his condition uh was finally at hand but it was not to be for these sails belonged to a spanish vessel sailed by spaniards who would kill him for having been a privateer and also because he was scottish so, uh, the first time the Spanish landed, uh, they went around to collect supplies and somehow didn't find him. But the second time a Spanish ship showed up, they did catch him off guard. And Spanish soldiers chased, chased him through the jungle, like this wild man with, like, <laughs> skins on. They're just, like, chasing him through the jungle. It's like Robin Williams and Jumanji. Um, <laughs> but by, by now, he was indeed in full survivalist Rambo beast mode, and he vanished into the brush. Uh, quite literally, according to reliable sources, the Spanish chased him until he just up and disappeared. Uh, frustrated, one of the Spanish soldiers just undid his fly and pissed on a nearby tree. 
The same tree that Selkirk was hiding in above the Spaniard's head. <laughs> That's not what I usually do when I'm frustrated. What, piss on a tree? Yes, yeah, was there a connection between the frustration and the tree pissing? I don't know, he was like in the forest, he's like, ah, fuck it, I'll, I don't want to go in a bucket, I'll just go here in the woods. I don't know. Don't want to wait in line at the, uh, the Port of Juan or whatever they have on the boat. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, Selkirk's just like looking down, this guy's taking a piss, and Spaniard's like, I'll be there in a second, hold on! It's like, this fucking Robin Williams-looking guy running through the woods, what is he hiding? And he's just Selkirk above, like, just like holding his breath with his hand over his mouth and, you know, presumably his hand over the mouths of four kittens he's protecting. <laughs> you know? Uh, some imagery here that I find quite funny. Anyway, so Selkirk would uh, t spend four years and four months in total on his paradisal island, chasing goats with his barrel knife, playing with his feral cats, watching the sea lion's sun on the beach, and studying the Bible as well as the charts and other nautical documents kept in his sea chest. In this way, he maintained his morale and his spirit far better than he ever had as a buccaneer. But then on the 2nd, and this is all according to him. So then on the 2nd of February, 1709, a privateering ship piloted by none other than William Dampier, the guy he left to go with uh, Stradler, um, William Dampier comes alongside uh, the island and drops anchor, and a small boat came ashore. Selkirk, having seen the British flag, was waiting for them on shore in his goat coat, probably carrying his barrel knife, and looking like an absolute chad. Uh, apparently, though, Selkirk was literally incoherent with happiness when he met the landing party, as William Dampier just sort of watched from the boat. Um, the captain, Woods Rogers, began referring to Selkirk as the governor of the island, and <laughs> Selkirk was so happy he pretty much couldn't stop laughing about this. I mean, imagine being that happy to have company. <laughs> I mean, four years is a long time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is a long time. But I will point out that the only thing he missed in this adventure was human companionship, and uh, that will come up a little bit later. So it turns out a lot of the men on uh, Woods Rogers and uh, Dampier's ships were suffering with scurvy. And Selkirk basically said, no worries, I can uh, chase down some goats for you. And the guys were like, wait, chase them down? Do you even want a gun? But Andrew Selkirk had already charged into the forest. And then for the next few days, chased down three goats per day to bring back to the men to nurse them back to health. <laughs> so are goats good for scurvy? Apparently, I don't know. Um, but he, he was probably also supplying them with fruits. Um, gotta get gotta get that protein. Mm -hmm. Gotta get those gains. Yeah, I mean, he's like, I, I can bring you vitamin C rich fruits, but you also ah uh, yes, as he he rushes through the woods chasing the elusive emergency packets. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, Captain Rogers made some remarks about Selkirk's state that we have recorded. Uh, mainly, he was impressed with how fucking good the guy looked. Uh, apparently he was pretty much jacked. He, uh, Rogers also noted that Selkirk's eyes had like a unique light to them, some kind of peace of mind that had not been obtained, um, uh, that he had not, or I'm sorry, that he'd obtained, uh, in this experience surviving on the island that, uh, the captain had not seen in the eyes of other men. That's what four years without the government will do for you. <laughs> Tax-free. <laughs> uh, and we have, a, we have a quote from Captain Woods Rogers, and he says, One may see that solitude and retirement from the world is not such an insufferable state of life as most men imagine, especially when people are fairly called or thrown into it unavoidably, 
as this man was. And, I mean, basically he's saying, like, like people who are afraid to, like, go outside of this, this you know, programmed life, you might say, you know, the the typical life and, you know, live off the land or do things differently. It's, he's saying it has its challenges, but it clearly isn't as hard as a lot of people think. Um, at least, you know, for a buccaneer. Um, so the captain, this captain Woods Rogers made Selkirk his second mate and would later give him command of his own ship, which he, uh, had command of until it was ransomed back to the Spanish for a healthy, healthy ransom. Uh, but knowing no other life uh, now that he was away from his island home, besides the buccaneer life, Selkirk went back into the business and had a number of successful operations. He uh, hunted for treasure galleons off the coast of Mexico with his new captain and eventually became sailing master on a new ship that was patrolling the du Dutch East Indies. Uh, this was a ship that would be used to complete a journey around the globe uh, with uh, Selkirk aboard before finally returning to English waters. So he did get to go all the way around the world, um, finished a journey of circumnavigating the planet and also of uh, living on an island all alone for four years. So did he go back to Scotland or England? He just went to England. Um, wow. In total, he had been away from uh, Europe for eight years. So Selkirk became popular. So, um, do you happen to know how big the island was, by the way? Uh, I can look it up. I didn't. Oh yeah, no, I no, no! I, I got it. Actually, I have it right here. I pulled up a secondary resource that I didn't put in my. Uh, I didn't put in my, uh, not script. Uh, it has an area of about fifty-eight square miles. A length. Okay, so it's it's fairly significant. Yeah, it's fourteen miles east to west and five miles north to south. And, okay, so yeah, that's it's not cramped. And it's mostly mountainous uh, and consists of coastline that has cliffs. Um, the only reason I pulled this up was I discovered a uh, a uh, project that was uh, uh, um, what, what do you call it? The um, good people down at the National Museums of Scotland who actually had a project where they went to find his base camp uh, fairly recently, actually. And they did find some evidence, as far as I know, but I know for sure they did find a um, some kind of an optical device that he would have had with him. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm just scrubbing through this document real quick. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to leave anything out. I should have. Yeah, I think I got everything, but anyway. Yeah, it's Richard Steele, not Robert Steele. Okay, sorry. Okay. <clears throat> so, eight-year journey. He's finally back in, in the EU. Or EU I, why did I say the EU? And finally <laughs> Europe. Um, and Selkirk became popular. Um, he's gotten all this money. He, got, he sold his story to a few writers, and his name became commonly known in all circles. He was that crazy guy who somehow survived four years on an island. And he also cashed out on the plunder he'd gained on his last voyage and became virtually a made man. He was worth about... Uh, 800 pounds, which today is a little over $100,000. Um, and here we return to the Englishman article by Richard Steele. Sorry, Richard. Uh, with the closing of the essay that Steele wrote about Selkirk. Quote, This plain man's story is a memorable example that he is happiest, who confines his wants to natural necessities, 
And he that goes further in his desires increases his wants in proportion to his acquisitions, or, to use his own expression, that is Selkirk's, I am now worth eight hundred pounds, but shall never be so happy as when I was not worth a farthing. It's kind of depressing, in a way. Yeah, and it kind of takes us back to what we were talking about about the beginning of this kind of endless feedback loop of suffering with the whole, you know, commercial exploitation. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a little microcosm of what it might look like for things to be done differently um, without, you know, endless expansion and without the endless requirement for more resources. And there's arguments to be had about that. Don't get me wrong. I'm just presenting a separate perspective here. Y'all can disagree with me and that's okay. But I really like my men in the woods. I don't know why. That was that sounded really not not good, but whatever. That was a little bit weird. I'm just gonna gloss. I over just that. like Robin Williams, okay? Everybody likes Robin Williams. Reddit loves him. Okay, sorry. Uh so he was only in London for a few months, however, um, spending his money and basically taking interviews. Before he was assaulted with or assaulted, before he was charged with assaulting a shipwright. And he might have gotten about two years probation out of it. We really are not sure. Um and also could have been to prison for two years for it. So later in 1717, he finally went home where he presumably fought with his brothers again. And he met a girl who was a milkmaid and eloped with her back to London. But his money was drying up and he had to make ends meet somehow. And he began to become melancholy again. He looked toward the Navy once more. Um, the naval life, I should say. After all, it was the only life he knew, aside from his goat raising. He looked at that raging machine that he'd been so rudely ejected from so many years earlier, and he felt it call to him again. And going back to his island was so far from the realm of possibility. Somebody owned it anyway. And he might not get so lucky. He might run into trouble with the law this time. So he joined the Royal Navy to serve... So how long again are we um, advanced in time since he came back? Uh, this is like... Um, I believe about two years. Not not long. Is that satisfactory, or should I go look? <laughs> I mean, no, I just was wondering for a general. Yeah, it's not idea. it's not long at all. Um, not long at all. Uh, wait, no, no. He gets back. He gets off the island in seventeen oh nine. So, and this is 1717. Oh. So this is almost, almost 10 years. Wow, I'm such a dumbass. Um, where did I, where did I lose 10 years of time? Hmm. Time is a flat circle. I was gonna say, <laughs> clearly I, I fucked that up. Uh, maybe we'll edit that out or not because we're, we're pretty transparent on the show. So yeah, it was in 1717 that he ended up going home. I thought he was only in London for a few months. But I guess I was wrong. So anyway, <clears throat> the point is, in 1717, he's thinking about getting back into the Navy life. Um, so he did end up joining the Royal Navy uh, to serve as a master's mate aboard the HMS uh, Weymouth to hunt uh, pirates off the coast of Africa. So, the old switcheroo. What? Sorry, look at, look at the next sentence. <laughs> what? Look at the date. Oh, for fuck's sake. Wow, I wrote 1920 instead of 1720, everybody. Let the record show. Let the record show. Well, this is, this is one long-lived man. I got <laughs> He lived two months. I mean, 200 years. 
So he's hunting pirates, and in 1720, on a return visit to England, he ends up marrying a widow. Um, Wait, what happened to his other wife? Uh, he abandoned her, and he didn't. Oh. He didn't marry her either. Um, oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, they eloped, and they didn't marry. He just kind of screwed around with her, and then joined the navy. So in uh in uh, Plymouth, England, he married this widow, and I don't know what it was for. Perhaps he really liked her. Perhaps he wanted to start some kind of a personal legacy. But just over a year later, he caught yellow fever at sea, like so many others in his crew, and went up to that great mainsail in the sky on the December, thir the 13th of December, 1721, at the age of 55. And this will come as a surprise to no one. Alexander uh, became one of the inspirations, some say the sole inspiration, for Daniel Defoe's classic book, Robinson Crusoe. This is a book I've read and enjoyed a few times. Of course, I recommend it to everybody. And there's some good audio versions on LibriVox if you want it for free. Uh, but any form you can read it is going to be better than uh, not reading it at all. Because like George warned us at the beginning of the, uh, the uh, episode, you should prepare some skills for the uh, biblical end times. Um, but here's, I had a personal note I want to throw in here. Um, the thing that strikes me the most about Alexander Selkirk is the absolute clarity his experience offers in regards to things like uh, modern life, but also the triumph over fear in the face of absolute ruin and desperation. And I think it shows uh, how a fear and worry and even apathy can be withstood, a new kind of attitude about life can emerge. It's a sort of attitude where a person is fully aware and has fully understood just how fucked everything is, and yet somehow persists persists. It's an educated, sober, and optimistic view of life. And instead of just hiding away from his problems or ignoring the gravity of his situations or his situations, Selkirk adopted his doubt and his fear and burned it for fuel. And I think that's why he was so happy. He used all that bad shit to fuel the fire when the flames went down. Lo and behold, that bad shit was no longer there. <laughs> I'm rather proud of myself for that one. And don't forget the unsung heroes of all of this, which was the uh, cat army that prevented him from being eaten by rats. Presumably the cats were all taken um, and adopted by individual crew members on the ship that rescued him. Yeah, so I like this story because cat army, goat raising, happy man in goat skin with a barrel knife. Um, just like living the dream in a couple of huts. And escaping from Spaniards who are pissing on your tree. <laughs> and not being in England anymore. Yep, not being in England, and even, hell, getting out of the system that was starting to really, really wind up at that point in history. So, it's a small story, but I really liked it, and I hope you guys did too. Did you have anything you wanted to uh, discuss before we headed up to the surface there, George? Oh, I was just, just thinking about, uh, thinking about something that the, uh, the great wizard of the South, Alex Jones, said, <laughs> buck, buck the system and the group collective. Do that, and you'll learn your way to the next level. Oh, my God. Alex Jones comes <laughs> up so fucking much on this show, and I lived in Austin for a year and a half, and I never even made one effort. Well, I did. I, I tried to find him, but I have no idea where the fuck he is. I mean, this is <laughs> PSA to the audience. The, the reason Aaron has been so on top of things lately is he started taking his super male vitality <laughs> pills. <laughs> Uh, also known as cocaine. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, did you want to did you want to dig into the deep philosophical topics or anything, or should we head to the surface? I think we should probably head to the surface. All righty then. Alex Jones has been mentioned. 
We have paid our dues. We've we've fulfilled our contractual obligation. To the podcaster in chief. <laughs> People are going to actually think we like him at a certain point. George, if you had one thing to complain about in regards to unfettered expansionism at the cost of all that is moral, good, and just, what would you complain about? Uh, what, are, what kind of expansionism are we talking about? Are we talking about political, economic, like what are we... The expansionism that's on topic with today's episode. <laughs> you get I to... feel like there's, there's more than one but type. You, okay. The, 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 the English type. You get to pick one thing to bitch about. Um, let me think. Sorry, I was thinking too much about about modern capitalism. Let's see. <laughs> um, I think making people smoke opium was really, really shitty. That's a good one. I think that was a really shitty move on the part of the British Empire, was making people smoke opium and then having some fucking wars yeah. to prevent people from not smoking opium. It's like, yeah, talk about the real drug war. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about... uh how the Japanese responded to all that shit. Like, eventually what happened when they wouldn't accept the opium was that a guy just sailed up to the coast and threatened to blow them all up. Yep, yeah, they sailed warships into into the harbor. I remember that. All right, we need to go. We need to go east soon. We need to talk about all that shit, because that's crazy. And it's a goddamn injustice that we haven't covered it yet. I think the sad part is that most people probably don't even know what we're talking about. Um, but we'll get there someday. By the power, by the power of Alexander Kirkpatrick, or whatever the fuck his name was. <laughs> Sel- Hamilton, what? Selkirk. Whoa. Alexander Selkirk Hamilton, what? Yep. Uh, yes. Anyway. Anyway. Anyway, I'm, I'm flipping it on you. So if you had to complain about one thing in regard to all this bullshit, uh, what would you complain about? Uh, I would complain about, um, uh... God, it's so complicated. I wanted to say the paranoia that makes it happen, where people just blow up and keep going and all that. Um, I would complain about that, but that's just a fact of life. I think I'll complain about life itself, the natural order, that people sometimes are bad and do bad things, and the response to that is to is to what? Sometimes you feel like you have to do the bad things too. And I think that's why the British Empire got so crazy, because they weren't afraid to do a lot of bad things <laughs> out of paranoia. That's what you get with island folk. I don't know. Just kidding. Just kidding, because Selkirk wasn't paranoid about anything, except for rats. Uh, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today, though, on that note. If you hate us, you're probably right, or you're probably... Uh, I don't know, a, a buccaneer who feels um, betrayed. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It really does help, even if we don't like Patreon. If Patreon is not your thing, it really helps us to drop a little tip in Venmo, or we call, I think the streamers are calling some super chats. Uh, I see people who make like a $100 every five minutes on there just for like showing their feet on camera. So if you like the show, 
I'm not going to show you my feet unless you give me $100, in which case, feet picks imminent. Uh, but if you want to give us a little <laughs> super chat, drops a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. Wow, I hadn't intended on resigning from the podcast today, but I might have to now. <laughs> George will send feet pics to <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. We're about to get that updated at some point with uh, George's ugly mug on there. Um, with all that being said... Aaron doesn't even know what I look like. No, I actually don't. Um... He's just a voice from the internet. <laughs> uh, with any, anyway, with all that bullshit out of the way, we'll close out and let the sounds of surviving the dark night of the soul and the rats play you out. Now you're ready to sail for the horn. Play, roll, and go. Our boots and our clothes, boys, are all in the horn. To me, rollicking, randy, dandy, oh. Heave up, oh, heave away. Hey, hey, roll and go. The anchor's on board and the cable's all stored. To be rollicking, randy, dandy, oh. Soon we'll be whooping her out through the locks. Hey, hey, roll and go. For the pretty young girls all come down in their frocks. To be rollicking, randy, dandy, oh. He'll fall